Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the She Built This podcast. So today's guest, um, we actually had a episode recorded, mostly recorded, and she had to um, take care of her son in our first recording. So today is take two, and I think it went really well. I think I want, like, in my dream come true, I would have pieced together parts of conversation number one with parts of conversation number two. Um, But I think that would make for a strange editing job, to be honest with you. So you just get conversation number two, which is a fantastic one. And she talks all about her book and these things in our lives called keystones, which are just like these underlying beliefs about ourselves and about other people. And we kind of get into the thick of it, honestly. So I hope you enjoy it and I hope you stay for the whole time because I know it's a little bit of a longer episode for me but I really think that there's a lot of benefit. Um, So today I'm going to be speaking with Tammy Jordan who is the founder and chief empowerment officer of Leader Consulting Group. She's an author, speaker, coach, and consultant in things HR, organizational development, and personal development also. So what she does is she works with business owners and executives in defining their culture, hiring, and promoting the best talent. She has also been shifting her individual coaching practice, and she's focusing more on helping trauma survivors and helping them to step into their power and create wholehearted lives and businesses. She and her family live in Hudson, where she loves doing just about anything with her two-year-old son, Finn, going for walks with her dog, Lucille, and also escaping to warmer temperatures with her husband, Tom. Oh my gosh, I would love to escape to a warmer temperature right now. It is April 24th when I'm recording this, and it is still cold outside. We need some sun, but I think we're going to get some um, this weekend, so that would be lovely. And I know that this episode is coming out on May 13th, and guess what May 13th is? Drumroll, please. May 13th is my birthday. Without further ado, though, I invite you to be a fly on the wall for my conversation with Tammy Jordan. Hi, Tammy. Good morning and welcome back. Or welcome. Well, actually, it is welcome back because um, Tammy and I recorded an episode or started to record an episode a couple of days ago, and she had to lovingly um, take care of her son, Finn, who is two and at home with her right now. Yes. Good morning. Yes. So this is, we're doing round two. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I think we're all in this, this weird space of working from home. And, and actually I was just having a conversation with, with somebody else the other day about how women, um, you know, I don't know about other people, but my husband still, he's working, he's still, uh, an essential employee. And so, um, I have so much, you know, there's, there's envy for, for women who, um, some of them are in their twenties and they're getting to be able to do all this yard work or all these things or, you know, all these projects. And, and I'm like, I just got a job added to my plate, right? Like I'm trying to do uh, my work and reinvent 
you know, my business a little bit and be a, a full time stay at home mom. And I, I'm so blessed I have my mom to help me. But for some reason, uh, Finn was going through something and he was screaming in the other. And, you know, that like blood curdling scream of like something's not right. And that like intuition radar just went off in my gut. And I go out there and my mom's crying, Finn's crying. Oh, um, no. Yeah. And it's just, he's getting to that age where, you know, it's a two-year-old kind of temper tantrum where he, and, and I think he has separation anxiety from everything going on. So he's, he's missing daddy's missing mummy. And, and the routine isn't, you know, as much as I want to some days beat myself up for it, I, I know I can't. Um, and that's an internal dialogue, but the routine it's, we try, but, you know, based on work schedules and, you know, it isn't always my first priority to make sure that he's on a routine. So just all of that, I think he can feel it, right? He knows that there's, you know, she was trying to get him down for a nap. He didn't want her. And, you know, it is what it is, but there's so many things that people are managing right now. And to take care of one and then take care of another, you know, I think when I had a training yesterday, a, a webinar, um, I paired with another, another person. We were talking about transition and, and work and, and change management uh, with the William Bridges work. And we were just talking that this, the, you know, COVID-19 situation is that so many people, the guilt is palpable, right? Like the, that's one of the bigger emotion or this uh, similar emotions that a lot of people are feeling. Like if I'm with my son, there's an element of guilt if, if my phone is going off the hook or I've got other things I need to get back to people on. Or if I'm doing work, there's a guilt that I should be with. And there's all of this, you know, people are having a hard time getting out of their own way. Like they're calling it procrastination. I don't think it's procrastination. I think it's them just knowing that the time isn't right to do that, right? They, that they need to take care of themselves. But even when they're in self-care because they're doers or they're leaders, they're used to executing, they feel guilty that they're not executing. Yeah. I think it's so, like I was kind of thinking about this the other day, like I think right now you have to really more than ever combine like your body and your health with the work that you're doing and really like respect what your body is telling you to do sometimes because you can't it's like you can't force yourself to work when you're feeling completely like garbage and and honestly to your point of people having like families home and stuff like that like I think it's more I think it's gonna leave a bigger impact for you to spend five minutes helping your child with their homework than for you to you know be right on time to that zoom call or whatever 100 percent yeah. And it, it's, it's a struggle, but the, the self-care is ringing up and, you know, even, you know, for me, one of the, I guess, trends that I'm seeing in myself and with other people, people will say, um, oh, I had, you know, I really got into my groove yesterday and that was great. And so I thought today was going to be great because, <laughs> you know, you, you're expecting that groove to happen every day. And then like, on the second day or the third day, you go right back to this kind of chaos or this non-groundedness or feeling of unsettled. And yeah, no, I, I hear that. I am so right now I'm like, okay, this is the ultimate challenge because 
if I can overcome or not overcome, but if I can work through feelings of stress and overwhelm right now, like you, I'm not, not working. And, and actually like I've seen my workload kind of increase just because like we're helping a lot of businesses stay afloat right now with their marketing. And I've taken on like some nonprofit projects. So if I can overcome, I hate to use that word, but the overwhelm and stress that I'm feeling right now in, in life, then I feel like it will prepare me better for the future when things are normal and easy. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and it's also just remembering that, like going back and honoring that space and saying, wow, championing yourself, right? Like I think sometimes we're so good at picking apart what we didn't do or what we fell short on or what, what you know, expectations, right? I had the expectation that I would complete uh, this podcast, you know, a couple days ago and that didn't happen. And I kind of was beating myself up that, oh my goodness, I can't even set up a system so that I can complete that. But yet we're not always as good as at remembering and honoring the celebrations. Wow, you made it through that. And look at what you're doing now. You're remembering to, you know, take care of yourself or spend that time on self-care. And I think the other acknowledgement that, you know, to acknowledge, same for me, is that I, I have collaborations with a lot of other coaches or organizational development consultants and we're in the space. This is what we do. Like we help people, we help businesses process the emotional side of change, right? So you have a new software, you have a new, whatever it is, new leadership, new whatever. And most of my work is helping businesses understand what change really means to people, because it isn't the nebulous concept of change. It isn't really COVID-19 that's flubbing everybody up. It's what COVID-19 means to me. That's the transition. And so when things first started happening, we were like, yeah, okay. And so my reaction has been the first week that I really acknowledged, oh gosh, okay, the world is shutting down. I'm not all my, all my trainings that I did in person, all my um, leadership development classes, everything got, of course, canceled or postponed. And I went into leader, business owner, high gear. Like I started reaching out to people saying, I want to call, I want to do this, I want to go. Like I was, that was my reaction. So I realized even in myself, I didn't know that in times that really scare me in difficult times, I, my anxiety is to process it full throttle. And then after that, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, slow down. Like you can't handle all this. Like you, you know, but that's the difference, right? It's you can know a concept. This is the work that I do. But even for myself, every day it's a reminder to like check myself, right? Okay, what did I say yes to? Is that too much? Like where where am I going? And it's it's hard work. It's very hard work. So I think because it's such hard work, the other emotion I'm getting from people is exhaustion. Pure, like kind of mental and emotional exhaustion. Yeah, I I totally see that happening to people. Even I I read an article yesterday on Zoom exhaustion and why, like even something as little as that change. Okay. So before like meeting at at a conference table, you have all of these visual cues and your, your brain is used to um, analyzing those visual cues at a conference table. And like, it knows how to process that situation, but now you're introducing Zoom 
And so you're, you're basically challenged, like you have to go on and have this meeting, but you're also challenging your brain by having to process a whole new set of cues and learn like an entire, it, it really is a different way for your brain to communicate. Like, yes, you're on a screen and you can still see the person and see what their body language is doing, but it's not the same as being in person with somebody. And even that alone um, is like mentally exhausting. So I, I actually, in the article, it had some really good tips, which I need to start putting into place. But like before you do anything now digitally, it talks about like really like breathing and grounding down and like getting grounded before you dive into something because otherwise you might come out you know, a little more worse for the wear. And it had some other great tips. I can share it um, for sure. Yeah. But but yeah, it it is all, it is just coming at us hot and, and furiously and it is exhausting. Yeah. And where I think we're all learning, right? So whenever you're learning, well, so many adults, the sad reality is that, well, the most successful ones are continually, continually learning, but the ones that I see that have kind of stagnated or, or feel stuck are the ones that, that stop learning. Learning puts us, even if it's unlearning, it puts us in a process of uncomfortability. And that feeling of kind of yuck, like I don't, that's where resiliency is made. That's where empathy is made. That's where um, champion, you know, having huge successes is all about staying in beta. Like it's staying in this state of Oh man. And, and for me, the, exactly everything you said about zoom, like I get my energy from people and I know my body just goes right into mode of knowing what to do at a conference room or right into a training of 50 people. Um, but in a zoom, I'm learning how to manage the technology so that everyone knows what they're doing. Um, you know, see people's faces, get a read, you know, some people's faces in the middle of the Zoom, they freeze and you're like, okay, (laughs) what do I do over there? Are they frozen or are they grimacing? Yeah, do they have a permagrin? Because that's a beautiful smile, Um, you know, or other people have the, you know, unfortunately it's a different type of freeze, right? Like they're rolling their eyes. I'm like, is she just rolling her eyes or is she? And so, you know, you're managing all that, you know, the chat box And, and in some ways, I feel like a, like a 20 something for the first time. And I, you know, I watch my niece work and she, you know, she's got her headphones in and she's on Google and she's doing this and she's doing like, she's doing like chatting with her friends. She's doing nine things. That's what zoom feels like to me. I'm, you know, I'm chatting and then I got, I'm operating a PowerPoint and then I'm, you know, polling the audience. And then I'm going to be separating people into small groups. Like, it's crazy. And then like a notification pops up on your computer. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, for some reason I can't share my screen and I'm trying to have a moment, but trying to keep, to honor the time of the Zoom. Yeah. Whew. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I have, a, I have a question for you. Yeah. When you talk about people being committed to constantly learning, I totally agree with you. And I think that's like, the, that's the sweet spot, right? But what would you say, like, how does somebody become aware of the fact that maybe they're in that or not? Like, how can we wake somebody up to be like, here, I want you to keep on learning. Do you know what I'm, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Um, So one of the principles about coaching, there's two principles and I was trained under the coactive coaching model. Um, the basic tenant of the coactive coaching model believes that everyone is naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. 
naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. So coaching doesn't come in and say, okay, you're broken or I need to fix you or whatever. It's that everybody has their own answers. The problem is, is that the cognitive mind, like my mind, like my intellect, my my cherry picking data, the brain, we think it's this like magical machine and it's really not. It's confused most of the time. And so what a coach does is it just kind of taps into stuff that I already know. I just, for some reason, I, I don't have access to it because there's another piece of my brain that's telling me something else. So when we're, when we're trying to get self-awareness is really self-awareness of what somebody needs. And sometimes people are such perpetual learners, they actually need the opposite. They need to calm down, you know, calm down, <laughs> stop learning so much because uh, it's, it's too much for you to, to process. Um, is that the second principle of coaching is asking questions, asking powerful questions, and then leaning, deepening. So there's all these skills that come with coaching, um, acknowledging, validating, and picking up on the nudges. So someone will say something to me, oh, it seems like I'm stuck. Okay. Um, what does that look like to you? And so then they start to describe it. And as they start to describe it, then you, I usually get some sort of nudge of that there's a word or there's a, there's something that they say that I'm like, Ooh, that's where I got to go. And yeah. I'm not always right. And then I drill down and usually people by the time the, the, the question, the series is over, they're like, wow, it sounds like, you know, I got to get out of my comfort zone. Ooh, yes. They said it, right. They said it. This is something that they know. And as soon as they say it, they own it. All I did was help them get there. There's not. And then, you know, I think some people get into the work of coaching and they think that it's like leadership. You're going to walk away and be like, oh, I helped somebody. I did, but it's never about you. You know, it's always about the other person. And, and that's the beauty of it. You most contract, you know, gigs that I have, I get, it's all about the person championing themselves at the end. Um, and it's, it's, there, there's not a lot of ego in it because if you keep your ego in it, it's not a, it becomes about you and not about them. So it's, it's I think that takes a lot of pressure off of you. Um, yeah, I, I feel like when you're in service to others, you don't have to worry. Like I don't have to constantly be sitting there monitoring myself and like how I'm being perceived and what they're thinking of me because I'm, I'm the focus is on them. So it takes a whole lot of pressure off you, which, Yes. Nice. <laughs> yes. And I just have to stay in tuned with, um, it's hard work. I, I, when I, when I first started, I, I thought it was like, well, how hard can this be? Um, to me, it's the ultimate meditation other than painting. Painting is my first or painting or drawing is my, my number one go-to of getting into the meditative state because I, I'm not the, the type of meditator that can sit and do nothing. Um, I, some people will say, well, you're kind of not meditating, but I, I get when I paint or, or do art, you know, uh, art in general, um, I'm able to quiet the mind so that things, the thoughts come in and they go, but I'm not really focused on the thoughts. So, so I can connect better to my intuition. The other, the next thing is um, working with clients one-on-one because I have to be so in tuned to what they're saying, how they're saying it. And I, when I first started, I was doing Skype coaching sessions and I stopped 
And one of the reasons I stopped is I'm actually more in tuned with people over the phone without seeing them than I am with seeing them because seeing them leads me into, I, I start getting, I start judging. I start going down a road where I'm actually not connected to intuition. I'm connected to what is the face saying? And then I miss out on all of these key words that they were kind of hint, hinting at that, that I missed. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> you know what? It, it, it makes total sense. Actually, when we were talking about the Zoom calls, I uh, nine times out of 10, I'm like, can we just please do a phone call instead? Because I can pay attention, like you said, to what they're really saying so much better than I can when I'm watching somebody on Zoom trying to process all the visual cues and and listen to what they're saying at the same time. So, and I know you're talking more of like on an intuition level, and but I think the same like oh, it's the same uh, principle. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. are you. Every everyone has it. Everyone has this kind of intuitive thing, and I, I also think that's another thing we're feeling right now is when you start shutting down stimulus, right? Um, that's why nature is so powerful in regard to intuition, because we are, before this whole thing happened, I was like, wow, we are 100% perpetually distracted. You know, and I say that as a society, not all people, some people, you know, it's a broad generalization. Um, but that distraction of being on our phones or being over here, we're literally trying to do too much. And you know, there's all these new recent studies coming out saying multitasking is a myth, like it's it's impossible, like you, you, your brain really can't do that or it can't do it well. Um, and we have so much to learn about the brain, I think, and I'm kind of fascinated by it. But the one thing I do know is that the dopamine release that you get from, you know, social media sometimes or, or whatever is, in my opinion, and I've seen people do it, it's just as addictive as some of the other what I call numbing addictions. Um, and I think we're in a space right now where we're, we're forced to shut down some of those things and kind of connect back to figure out how we get grounded. And I, for me, the major takeaway is the answer has always been there. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's being in nature, it's quieting the mind, it's being still, not running, not numbing. That's where you find the magic. And I, I feel a lot of people are tuning back into that. I just hope we, I hope we keep it after. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I hope you're right. And I, and I hope we keep it after I like just, just me personally, I've been trying to do like one day a week. Well, first of all, I've been shutting my phone off at like seven o'clock at night and not turning it back on until the morning, which feels so good because I like, we would be watching a show at night and I would be on my phone like simultaneously getting a dopamine hit while I'm watching something. You know what I mean? Like, like you said, social media is a dopamine hit. It's, it's exciting to see that little bell that yes. says nine plus notifications that makes the, and obviously they know that <laughs> that's what it's doing for us. So, um, so I was guilty of that. So I'm like, this has got to stop because I don't feel good at all about myself when I wake up the next day. And I'm like, what happened? I have no idea what happened last night because I was completely distracted. <laughs> um, so the other thing I've been working on is taking like, well, honestly, before this, I, I had talked to um, Casey Matthews and she challenged me just like as a friend to try to take um, a day during the weekend off from working. So now I'm up to two days off from working. Like I don't work. 
Yeah, I don't work on Saturday and Sunday unless it's like for she built this because that's that's not work. It's like so creative and fun, and it's for me. Um, but I don't do that one whole day. So like there is zero work that happens. And now what I'm trying to do is kick that up a notch and take a total digital detox one day every single weekend because. I did it last weekend. I was like, oh my God, like the amount of times I reach for my phone just to like see if something is there is ridiculous. And I don't want to be addicted to that. That's that's not something I, I choose for myself. Yeah, I, I it is certainly my, um, I guess, addiction of, of choice currently. Um, and I don't, you know, I've, I've gone super deep about it. I've gone, you know, I've gone all over the place for it. Why some people can do it, why some people can't. And I, I know what it is for me. I just have to, um, you know, I think I'm viewing social media as a, okay, so this would be a good segue. So this, this book that I've been writing, that's been like a, a labor of love and a, and a, whew, like, I think I'm done and I'm not done. It's, 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 I went, thank God I went in green to writing a book because I'm not sure I would have ever signed on <laughs> to the to the process. It, it was much more uh, intense than I thought. But anyway, now I'm getting towards the end. I'm in the final drafts and, and you know, everyone's talking about, okay, you're going to self-publish. You're going to try to put in a proposal. And I've got about like 23,000 words, I think is what the final manuscript is going to be. So it isn't, it isn't one of those, you know, book books that like a, a publisher might be interested in. It's, it's like a mini book and, you know, just going through that whole process, the long story made short is that, is that the woman I've been working with, she's like, well, it's a good start. And I'm like, Oh God, it's a good start. And she's like, you know, you should probably build up, you know, your social media because publishers are looking for, you know, your own following. So there's this pressure and I feel like there's this pressure to be like, okay, I got to get like thousands of followers because that's how I'm going to, and I'm, I've now gotten to the point where that pressure, whenever there's that amount of pressure, it doesn't work. So I either have to release it and say, whatever path of how this book is going to get published or not published or whatever, whatever's meant to happen, I just got to let it go because this obsession is causing me to you know, to do that, to pick up my phone and be like, I don't know how many followers, how many, and I get this kind of feeling in my stomach where like, once I completely release it, I think I'm going to have a lot of work to do on that process. But once like, then I think it will take care of itself, but I need, I need to do the work on releasing it and, and knowing, okay, if you just schedule the time, things will work out that you will be able to do what you need to do uh, within scheduling that social media time. And then that's it. Then you close your phone and you're done and you just let it, let it be. Um, but man, it's hard to do because it's connect for me, it's connected to another objective that I've always wanted. Yeah. And I, I, um, I recently read, or I'm starting to read a book called stop. It's like, stop checking your likes or something like that. Yeah. And it came up in my, it, in my ads or, you know, my, it gets, yeah. to, it gets to a bigger point. Like I, I don't think you should post and ghost, like don't post something and then just like run right. away and never on to the answers. Yeah. But I also don't think that like anybody that judges themselves or their likability or what is actually happening for them based on what other people are like saying to them on social media, it's not a healthy place to be for sure. Right. Um, so interesting to you. So I like that we use it kind of differently. Like I 
really like seeing so I'm kind of like addicted to like what other people's experiences are right now like I love the posts that like people talk about their trip to the grocery store or I I just really like knowing like what people are experiencing so I like that too I'm not gonna because I go I think it's like point one and point two like point one is I feel like I need to have it it's connected to a bigger business strategy right and then once I'm there I get like hooked I'm like oh that's really fun or oh that's really and I think the extroverted part of myself too right now that isn't doesn't have a lot of time with other people that way like reading about what's happening with them makes it's like a pseudo uh connection you know where I feel like I'm keeping up with everyone so that when we get back and we can go you know have drinks at dinner I'm not you know I'm kind of caught up in your life type of thing yeah um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with these things. I just think you person, everybody needs to choose what their boundaries are. And that's then, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yes, absolutely. And to, to find some balance to make sure that it isn't that it's, it's for the right reasons and you limit it, but it isn't for when you get that feeling that it is for more of that dopamine fix, or if you're feeling kind of down or, you know, you're looking to the likes for validation. Ooh, there's a story in there for me. There's a big one. Um, or you're looking for acknowledgement or you're looking to be heard or seen. Like there's there's a danger there. And I can totally, uh, if I'm, you know, completely vulnerable here, get, get yanked into a space that makes me feel poopy if, <laughs> if I only get two likes. Yeah. And that's silly. I know that in my head that that's silly because that's not what my life is, but, um, I would be lying if I said it didn't feel that way. Yeah, no, it's, it's real. It's like a, it's so funny because I always think about this. I'm like, it's not real life, but it is so real. (laughs) Yeah. And it is a little, you know, what's that Jamiroquai song, like virtual insanity. It is, it is a little kind of insane. It's connection without connection. Yeah. Um, all right. So, and, and so that's why, I mean, part of, I think my job and in, in what I do is like creating actual connection. And I think you yes. do that really well with your social media, by the way, oh, you, thanks. you're vulnerable and you're open and you share like things that get people to think more deeply. And I think that's serving. And so like, definitely when it comes to posting, you have nothing to, to worry about in that regard. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> why don't you tell us more about the book? Because I am fat, you know, I know a little bit about what it's yeah. about, but. So this book is, um, is called returning to whole. And the majority of the book is about my story of telling my story, um, kind of shining a light on it. Um, and it really started as a, it just was something I felt propelled to do and I didn't know where the journey was going to bring me um, to help others but really to help myself I I think the whole process of getting it onto paper in a way was very releasing and so it's a story about um, my life in regard to like trauma um, and adversity I a a little background I am my dad was his story and my story are so intertwined, but he was, I didn't grow up with him, um, but he was an alcoholic. 
and what I would call um, a narcissist. You know, I'm not a clinician, I can't diagnose, but in my experience, he was a narcissist. And so, and I was his major need for narcissistic supply. Nobody, other people were, but for the most part, I was. And I think part of that was because I was his mirror. We were so similar that the things that he didn't like about himself, he saw in me. And then I became his projection. I became all like the self-loathing that he felt for himself. He was going to push it all onto me. Wow. Like, can you give me an example? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he would call, so in his, one of his fits of alcoholism, he, he never felt accepted or validated. So on top of everything else, he was gay, which you know, nowadays, if, if people could just rewind, I, so I was born in 78. So he came out of the class, he had gone to Germany um, in the military, in the army and kind of came back and said, oh my gosh, there's people living out that are gay. And, and so he wanted to come out, he, you know, divorces. It was very traumatic divorce, but divorce, I was, I think two or three when the divorce was over. Um, but he had so much self-loathing about never feeling accepted from people that he was gay, that, that, and my, my mother's side of the family, everyone was like, you know, it was, it was odd because my dad was kind of like the guy's guy. So it, they kind of had a disconnect about it and they didn't believe him. But once they saw, you know, he had, who got into some relationships and they, they were 100% open-minded. It was his own parents that just kind of rejected him about it. And I, I tell in the book, some stories about how that happened. His his mother had a really negative impact on that. But so the self-loathing was so bad that um, he didn't accept himself. He didn't love himself. And so whenever he would call in a fit of rage or drunkenness, he would threaten to kill himself and say it was because I didn't love him. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm, I think the first time he did it, I was like 13 or 14. And I had been kind of reaching out to my dad, you know, a few years before on the phone, like 11 or 12 to try to, you know, build a, a connection with him. But I was like, huh, like, what are you talking about? But the one thing my grandmother kind of saved me with was that he, you know, she, she always, my, this was my mother's mother. She said, you know, Tammy, he, he does not love himself and people that can't love themselves, they can't love other people. And I, that phrase, I, I kind of didn't get it in, in my teens, but as I grew up, I was like, oh, like it just became to un involve and involve and, un you know, what that means. And it's such a beautiful statement, but that hatred that he had for himself, he would try to shame me into that same hate um, by saying, you know, you don't call me, you never pick up when I call you. So all of these things, or I don't, you know, I don't know where my money's going to. I, I think freshman year in college, I got a nose ring and he shamed me so much with that. This is where my money's going. Um, so we would dangle carrots, but all of that was all connected to, again, him making himself feel better. And so the story um, basically talks about that, but also kind of the pieces in my life that kind of supported this, this crazy relationship. And um and, and I, the premise of the book is that I, I discovered that, that there were these keystones. So 
somewhere along the way, I had put in a keystone and keystone just meaning, you know, in an archway, the stone that's at the top of the archway that kind of, you know, architecture, it kind of holds all the other stones in. Um, yeah. If you take it down, the whole arch falls down. And this visual I kind of came up with because I had done some work, you know, reading Louise Hay. Louise Hay talks about the underlying assumptions in our life that don't serve us. And I was like, it's not just the assumption. It's like, what is being held up by that assumption? Because when you try to break away from a narcissist, first of all, it's my father, right? How do you break away from your father? I did, but how, how do you? Right. How do you even like feel? Well, how do you feel okay about breaking away from anybody? Sometimes, yeah. you know? Especially with someone that has no boundaries. I mean, narcissists are, that's the, that's the thing. They have no boundaries. So you say, okay, dad, you know, it's, it's really not good for us to talk anymore. And then I would show up in my twenties to my apartment. He, he didn't know where I lived. He found where I lived. He, he to actually broke the law. He was a male. He was connected to the, he was, he worked for the post office, even though he didn't deliver mail, but, um, he found my address there. He was not ever supposed to do that. Um, and he showed up at my like door and would leave threatening notes on my, my door. So you see you, you breaking away is like, it's just, it's just a joke. But, um, anyway, uh, the whole process of, if I try to break away, if I try to take the assumption down. So one of my assumptions was, um, I don't matter, right? Like he, being the narcissist and his narcissistic supply was number one. He's number one. And so Tammy in through her self process always put myself last because that's how I survived. And when I kind of acknowledged that that was like, listen, no, I freaking matter. Like I've, I, and then I go on in the book to talk about, I have a rare disease and how that rare disease with the discovery of that, like I had to put my health, I had to put myself first. But when you try to take that down with someone who got used to 20 years of, I was his supply, he could put himself first, he felt better. And then now I reject that and I take down that assumption and I fight back and I say, no, I'm first. Whew. Then, and I imagine you were doing that like throughout your life with other relationships and other circumstances, because that's how you were taught that you had to be. That's right. So every single relationship I had every single was about me being the supporter me being the person that gave too much me not fulfilling like even as simple as I remember you know being with my friends in high school and I would do I would do the meek you know the meek thing of well what do you guys want to do I'm okay with what, whatever you guys want to do and all all I realized in my 20s is that it built to this horrible resentment and anger for every everything I was bitter I was like jealous I was I was honestly just mean about it, but it was all bubbling under the surface. And in my twenties, it all came out and it came out in a very misdirected, shitty, excuse my language way. And, and years later, I, I realized, you know, narcissism is generational. And if I didn't check it in my twenties, guess what? I, and I still have these horrible fears that that's who I'm going to be one day because Sometimes, and I can see how it happened to my father, right? Like the, my father never got any acknowledgement from his parents and he grew like me, resentful, bitter, angry. All he wanted was somebody to see him and acknowledge him and love him for who he was. And then he just passed it on to me. It's that lack of self-awareness or ability to control it and not understand how to get out of this monsoon that you're in 
And so for me, I, I feel like my life goal has been to stop, literally stop the hereditary um, trauma of, of passing this junk from one generation to the next and, and really stepping into that space of when you identify that that keystone has to come down and what, what else? Yeah, and what the other books didn't talk about was that so much of it has to do with timing. Whether, whether or not you're ready and or the time is right for the whole structure to fall down. And for some people, that never happens and that's okay. Um, but for me, I couldn't live in that pain anymore. So taking it all down was, I didn't, I never went to his mother's funeral. I actually, in the last, like, I think 10 years of her life, I never spoke to her because um, it was just, there were, again, there was no boundaries. Like you take, they would take me in. It was all or nothing. You were either in and you were supply for them to feel good about themselves or you were out. That's how they viewed it. So yeah, it was bizarre. And then relearning, right? Relearning how other people in the world engage. Oh, you mean people don't hold money or dangle money over people's heads? Oh, I didn't know that people did that. Like it was, and even though I had my mother's side of the family, I think when you have trauma on the other side, you're just so confused. You don't, you don't realize that that's not the way that most people respond. So when do you feel like you learned those things in your twenties? Yeah. Yeah. So the book, yeah. And it goes into the twenties uh, time period of basically how I kind of, there were certain key people in my life that came in exactly at the right time and I was ready for it. And I was able, and, and I talk about also like the good keystones because I had had my mother's side of the family that gave me some good keystones to kind of balance this out. I was aware enough to, to pick up these kind of gems as they, or nuggets of, of info as, and people as they came along, there's like, wow, I gotta, I gotta change or I can do this. And then it, you know, the book talks about the implications of that, like, you know, helping other people identify their keystones and then figure out whether it's something that because of the timing is right for them or they have to. So um, an example of that, my cousin called me and this is my dad's sister. And she said, uh, my dad's sister's daughter. So um, same, my dad's side of the family. She's like, Tammy, she's like, how did you do this? Like, I need to get away from my mom. And before that, her father um, was still living and he had Alzheimer's and he was in a, a nursing home. And it wasn't time for her to break off the keystone because her mother was the gatekeeper to her father. And it was more important for her to see her dad. And I said, you know what, Amy, you've got to it, it's, it's all up to you. Like you have to, it, you know, if you want to see your dad, then, then you appease, you just figure out how to deal with your mom and, and, and process that and, and get through it because that's more important. And I feel so many, you know, survivors of domestic violence or sexual violence, like, and working with them. Cause I spent a, a small short of um, stint of time working for a crisis center um, I hear their stories and it's, it's that it's, they, they can't leave because of the kids or they can't leave because, and, and some find a way, but for some people, it's just not, it's just not that easy. And so I wanted this concept to really validate that it isn't for people who don't understand trauma. It's not, 
and when your whole the whole everything you've known comes crashing down, it's really hard to walk away from that. Because yeah, it's like every self help book that would say that when you decide that you're going to make some change, there's going to be a lot of repercussions for that change. That's right. Yeah, because you've you know you've fulfilled a role in this system, and it's the irony of it. And and this the last part of the book is that this system's way of thinking is what I'm trained at as an organization development consultant. I'm trained in looking at the system. So when I applied systems thinking to my life, I'm like, that's, it isn't, it isn't simple. It isn't as simple as I'm a survivor and I'm going to get out of this. It's, I play a role and I play a role in my mother's life, my aunt's lives, my cousins, my kids, my Um, And so when I change my role, guess what? Everybody else is going to have to adapt to that or not. And when they don't, we have to be willing to say, okay, I'm I'm ready to let that go. And for many people, that's beyond difficult. So in the book, do you guide people through identifying what some of the keystones are in their life? And do you guide them through taking them down or do you kind of say like this is what I did and there's a so I added that yeah I added a small section of I've been using some of this already in in the coaching work that I do and so in that process I've I've come up with a I think I don't I now that I'm it's probably good 20 that seem to be the most common keystone so I list all those um And then I list a process. It's like a four-step process to try to um, help people define what those assumptions are um, or those keystones of how. And it's really just what has shaped them for how they engage with the world. Uh, And some people have really healthy ones. And that's the other piece I talk about is making sure that you not just identify the ones that mm, probably kind of crummy, you know, didn't, didn't really help me out that much. But you also identify the ones that made you resilient or that were so positive that you had that to rely on. The people that I think that are the hardest to work with are the ones that just have, you know, one, you know, just bad keystone, not bad, I don't, it's not a judgment call, just one non-serving keystone after another. I mean, that's really hard to, to kind of unpack. Um, and then I, you know, I don't tell people what to do because again, every situation is so different. It's more the concept of the questions to ask yourself so that you're more prepared that if you want to break them, you're ready to. Yeah, that makes sense. I can't wait to read it personally. (laughs) I I can't wait for it to be done. Oh my gosh. Um, It's, I think because it's so emotional, it's taking me longer than, you know, a, a, you know, a regular or business book would, would have, um, and then I'm kind of ending it with a little bit of thought around my work um, because so the last part talks about, you know, the returning to whole was really about the way that the concept is. If these keystones weren't put into place by other people, like who would I be? And that's what I'm trying to get back to. I'm trying to get back to when I came out day one, who am I like, who am I without the trauma, without like rewriting my story? And if I'm a whole person you know, I was thinking about it in this context, we, we sometimes our institutions haven't really been that good in accepting whole people. Um, 
like one of the diversity and inclusion work stuff that I do is, is a concept called covering where people kind of diminish or downplay their, um, their sexual identity, you know, or gender identity or sexual identity or, um, their race or their, whatever it is, they try to downplay it in order to fit in or to feel like they're not going to get discriminated against or, um, and I think there's so many people that are covering so many aspects of their life at work. Like, oh, I, I hear women all the time in leadership conversations of, well, I don't want to talk too much about being a mom because it's used against me. But dads, if they, if they, this is all changing, but it, it, it was the, the prompt predominant narrative. If dads talk about them going to pick up their kids or whatever, it's like they're heroes. Yeah. They're like, oh, so sweet. Oh, it's that's so, so sweet that you're, you're doing that. Oh, good. Go to their softball game. Right. But if moms do it, it's like, oh, it's, it's, like a, it's like a, um, a, a handicap. Yes. It's, it's like, oh, she's not all in. She can't be partner. She can't be principal because she's, you know, and it's all this kind of nuanced it's, it's under the, and I'm tired of that. And I, I'm so tired of it. I'm sorry. I'm tired of talking about it. I'm tired of people not getting it. But the, the last part is really, and if I return to whole and being a mom is part of my, I want an employer and I don't see why this isn't possible. And I think the, the, the timing of this is so crucial with COVID-19 is that I want employers to say, oh, you're a mom. We want that. You know, we want that perspective in our business. We want for, for our clients, for our, you know, our sales, our marketing, our whatever it is, you bring a new perspective in. I want someone to be um, Latina. I want someone to be um, identify as a lesbian or, or a trans or bisexual. Like we want people as diverse as possible to represent our companies because that's who we're, you know, we're delivering to a very diverse world. And I think so taking this on a micro level yes. as, as human beings, um, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes it feels like if you don't have a flaw, you have a flaw. Or if you, no, I, sh- I shouldn't say it that way. If you don't have something wrong, like to indulge in like a, a complaining session with your friends or, you know, if, if, if things are going great and you're feeling great and everything's great, there's something wrong. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I totally know what you mean. Yes. Yeah. And no, and, and the, the wholeness returning to whole is, is everything. It's, it's everything. It's the, it's the things that aren't broken. It's the things that are broken. It's the things that, um, that are minorities and majorities. It was funny. One of my clients um, they have this diversity and inclusion committee and they're in California and they're way above the curve of everyone. They're in the AEC industry. They're an engineering firm and they are above the curve in what they're doing. They are thinking really progressively about it. And it's wonderful. When I sat down with the diversity and inclusion committee, they had everybody at the seat except for a white male in their forties. And I was like, um, hi, like <laughs> you're, you, this isn't diverse. And they're like, well, you know, that represents the majority in our company. So we didn't think, and it's like, no, it's, it's everybody. Right. Like right. If, you have they, have- if that's the majority of the people in the organization, they need to be represented at the diversity and inclusion table. Like yeah. we're, we're still segmented thinking about, you know, it's, or it's, I think about women's issues. The people we need at the table for women's issues are men. 
And I know that yeah. it sounds we talk, crazy. No, we talk about that a lot, actually. And yeah, and I agree. Like in returning to our own personal wholeness, it is. It's about the broken parts. It's about the whole parts. It's about the good parts. It's about yeah. everyone sitting at the table, like literally everyone sitting at the table um, and all parts of ourselves sitting at the table. Um, and, you know, I, I, we were starting to talk about this in the other, in the other conversation. It, it's that idea of, I think people are so afraid to engage in these types of, cause it's so many people are afraid to say the wrong thing. You know, I, I, even me, like I saw, uh, I do the work and I, I, I saw a sheet the other day um, and I'm using the wrong words, like, especially in the LBGTQ space, I'm not, I'm not using everything that I should be. And, and Brene has a great quote where she says, oh no, I think it was Maya Angelou. Um, when we know better, we do better. And so I think if everyone goes in and be like, sincerely say, well, I didn't know. Um, and, and you, you believe them and you say, okay, she didn't know, but she's going to do better next time. And you see someone do better next time or use the right language. Like that's the best that we could ask for. Um, but so people are so afraid to say the wrong thing and be politically incorrect. And I think that's done a, such a disservice for people bringing their whole selves. Yeah, that is really true. And it's caused a lot of um, segmenting and, and people sticking to people that use the same language as them. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I, to get back to your, you know, statement too, about when there's like, my story is so filled with adversity. Um, but it took me a long time to get used to nothing being wrong. I, I for me, the, um, whenever I started to feel good or whenever I was waiting for the it's a couple things, I was waiting for the shoe to drop as Brene talks about, but I was also, um, creating a mess. Like there were times when it, like the chaos was addictive. It was like the only place I felt safe. And the only place I knew how to respond was through craziness. And in, in my, that's my word, not, not someone else's it was my own craziness. Um, and it took me a long time to understand, wait a minute, you don't need to make everything, every, you know, small bump, a huge mountain. And, and that was like a big epiphany I had. I'm still, I sometimes still find myself and I'm like, why, why are you making such a mess out of this? Just, just get out of your own way. Yeah. Like nothing needs to be wrong here. Yeah. Nothing needs to be wrong. Like why, but for so many trauma survivors, I think that becomes, um, a real hurdle. Um, it's, it's almost like connected to what well, it was connected to my self-worth. Yeah. Um, all right. We are kind of coming up to the end here, but thank you so much for sharing everything that you did and telling about your book. And I also would love for you to tell us how to connect with you online so we can like some of your stuff. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. So my company, so when I do work um, with businesses, that's at theleaderconsultants.com and feel free there's connection there to, to email me i'm at tammy at the leader consultants t-a-m-m-y and then social media is tammy y jordan um that's yeah tammy tammy y jordan on instagram i think facebook is still changed through empowerment um and then you can find me at tammy jordan um 
as well, which is like, I have two kind of Facebook pages, one for the businessy, more businessy stuff. And then the other stuff for like the book and, um, the other, the other area I'm going. Yeah. I'm excited for that. Um, so when do you think the book is going to be out? I'm really hopeful within the next, um, couple months, I'm really hoping for summer, um, or before I, I'm in the, I, I say I'm in the final edits, you know, but I've been, been in the final edits for like a month and a half now. So, um, summer, that's what I'm going with. Okay. And if awesome. it doesn't, it's, if it's not done, it's going to just come out the way that it is. Cause I can't, <laughs> can't go another round of edits. Uh, I hear so many authors saying the same thing. Well, thank you so much for joining us and happy social isolating for just a couple more weeks. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. This is, um, it was fun. The one that we had before and this one, I just, I really enjoy talking with you. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.